Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And I'm happy to uh, welcome you and our speakers today to talk about a book by the, uh, just released by the Hoover Institution. It's this book. There are copies available for you outside if you haven't picked one up yet. It's called Reforming America's Healthcare System, The Flawed Vision of Obamacare. This is edited by uh, Scott Atlas of the Hoover Institution, and it's a, a, a book with contributions from scholars from the United States and from ab abroad talking about the health care law that Congress passed and President Obama signed one year ago this month, and um, uh, what uh, critiquing that law, offering perspectives from abroad as well about the effects that it's likely to have on uh, health care in the United States. And um, we, I'm very pleased that we have one of the contributors to that book with us here today to talk about it. Uh, her name is Grace Marie Turner. She's a president of the Galen Institute, a public policy research organization that she founded in 1995 to promote an informed debate over free market ideas for health care reform. <laughs> Among other things, uh, Grace Marie is co-author of Why Obamacare is Wrong for America, another book on Obamacare, which will be released later this month, I believe. Um, uh, and uh, uh, by HarperCollins. Commenting on the book will be uh, yours truly, and also Len Nichols, who's the director of the Center for Health Policy Research and Ethics at George Mason University. Before joining George Mason, Professor Nichols served as the director of the health policy program at the New America Foundation, the vice president of the Center for Studying Healthcare S Health System Change, a principal associate at the Urban Institute, senior advisor for health policy at the Office of Management and Budget during the Clinton administration's health reform effort, and, and, and so on. They both got longer bios than, than I could probably get through in the time we have allotted. So uh, the way this is going to work is like so. Grace Marie is going to come up first, and she's going to tell us about the book. Um, Len is going to be offering his comments, and then I'll be batting cleanup. Uh, then we'll open, the, uh, we'll open the floor to questions from the audience, and afterward, I'll invite you to join us up in Cato's Winter Garden for uh, wine and cheese reception. So with that, Grace Marie. Hello, everybody. So the book we're talking about is Reforming America's Healthcare System, a Flawed Vision of Obamacare. And Scott Atlas uh, wishes he could be with you today, but he is otherwise um, committed to duties on the West Coast and um, have a few comments that he forwarded to me that I will, that I will offer to you. Um, do we need health reform? Absolutely. I don't think there's any question that we needed health reform. But I think Scott and the authors in this volume really do, were prophetic. He produced this just in the first few months after the law was, after the law was passed and signed. And I think he was really quite prophetic in predicting some of the key issues that have already become problematic and that certainly are facing us with this, with this law. The, um, He begins in his chapter and his in his preface by talking about what he really considers to be one of the most serious problems with health reform, and that that we we really started with some false premises, and particularly that the American healthcare system is just completely a mess. That quality is much better in other countries. That other countries get it right, and we get it very wrong. And he talks in particular 
about, in fact, one of his quotes in the book, he says, government officials used pseudo-data to justify their personal agenda of centralizing power over health care to government. So just in case there's any question about where Scott stands on this. And he particularly talks about data that we know about um, breast cancer mortality, for example, 52% higher in Germany and 88% higher in the UK than in the United States. The mortality rate for colorectal cancer, 40% higher among British men than in the United States. And the data go on and on to really show that if you are sick, this is where you want to be. Americans have a really intuitive sense that this is true, and certainly foreign leaders, when, we're, when they're sick, as we hear over and over, this is where they want to come for health care. And to, to say that we need to trash this system in order to replace the whole thing and overhaul it really gets to a fundamental question about what we really want to fix about the system. The book addresses, as I said, many of the key issues that are driving the continuing debate over health reform, including the individual mandate, a chapter by Glenn Whitman, who's at Cal State and also an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute, um, the peril of to medical continuing medical innovation, a really terrific chapter by Scott Gottlieb, American Enterprise Institute, the fiscal train wreck that's coming by former Congressional Budget Office Director Doug Holtz-Aiken, and Richard Epstein writing about medical malpractice. I was at a, a conference this morning. Um, the Brookings Institution sponsored an Oxford debate over the constitutionality of the of the law, and there is a really excellent um, some excellent material in here as well about the constitutionality. So the other question that Scott said he believes really was a premise for enacting this sweeping overhaul law was that we were going to fix the problem of high health costs. And already we have seen that the Congressional Budget Office estimates that at best the cost of health insurance for a family will be as high as it would have been otherwise. And for some people, particularly those purchasing health insurance in the individual market, the policy will be $2,100 a year higher for a family than it would have been if the law had not passed. And since the president promised that the average family was going to save $2,500 a year on health insurance, that, at least for some people, is going to miss the mark by $4,600, which is, even in Washington can hardly be considered a rounding error. The, pro the president also, um, the, the chapter that I, that I contribute to the book was about health savings accounts and the future of individual choice in the health insurance market. And that's obviously something that I'm very concerned about. Regulations yet have to be written, as Lynn and I were talking about earlier, to determine whether or not health savings accounts are even going to be an option for people. They very likely would be an option for young people, um, those under 30, 
who fit in certain categories can purchase a high deductible policy, but the health savings accounts that, that Cato really has been a champion of. In fact, the first time I ever heard the idea of what were then called medical savings accounts was at a forum here at the Cato, Cato Institute in the late 80s with uh, Patrick Rooney. And I thought, wow, what a great idea. And Cato has really shepherded and nursed this idea all along. And you have a vested interest, Michael, in making sure that however the regulations are written, whatever happens with this legislation, that this really important option continues to be available to people that has been shown to not only help to moderate costs, certainly of health insurance, but also to give people an incentive to be partners in managing their own care and managing their own um, health, health care access care to care as well as their health costs. So the book um, entitled A Flawed Vision of Obamacare, and I think that we already are seeing that it's not just the vision that's flawed, it's the whole structure and it's the implementation. We even now see the president beginning to acknowledge that there are some things that have to be fixed with this law. He said right after the elections, oddly, that we just, that 1099 thing, nobody knows how that got in there, but the small businesses are just jumping up and down and clearly we need to fix that. Congress is taking its sweet time, but certainly will before it takes effect in 20, 2012. Um, President has said, you know, spending may not actually fall. We're covering another 32 million people. Of course, we're going to have to spend more for that. He's giving the governors more flexibility, as he said when he met with the National Governors Association members earlier this week, because they have been saying there is absolutely no way Governor uh, Rick Perry of Texas has said the bill is unworkable, unaffordable, and unsustainable. And, and when you have a state as big as Texas saying, we just don't see how we can play in this, in this game, clearly the White House has to listen. Even Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius has said the Class Act is going to need some significant um, reorganization and reworking. This is the provision in the law that was um, that's designed to provide long-term care insurance, but it's a even the Democratic chairman of the House Budget Committee said that it's a Ponzi scheme that even Bernie Madoff would have been proud of. Secretary Sebelius has issued nearly a thousand waivers to give companies and others who figured out how to navigate the bureaucracy um, at least a, a temporary exemption from some of the more onerous regulations of the law that would cause potentially several million people to lose health insurance. And she's also sent um, teams of people to the states to help them figure out how to get their, their Medicaid costs down without dropping, um, without disenrolling people. So there are already, even before most of the provisions of the law in, in effect, there are serious problems, and there are, the administration is already acknowledging that much of this law is going to have, or at least key provisions of the law are going to have to be addressed. The states really are the power centers over the next two years in implementing this. They, uh, the law gives them a lot of authority, not only um, with the setting up the exchanges, but also with Medicaid expansion, and those are really the two major coverage, uh, bases for coverage expansion in the law. The um, Roger Stark in the book has a really good chapter on some of the good and the bad things happening in the states that um, 
that are working or not working. He talks everything about from Tennessee and TenCare, which is a flawed experience experiment, if ever there was one, as well as the Healthy Indiana program in Indiana, which is a health savings account type model that Governor Mitch Daniels developed to expand access to health insurance for lower income people. So there's a, a very it's a very good summary actually of the different state experience so far. So where are we now with Obamacare? There was a poll um, from Kaiser uh, earlier last week that showed that a quarter of Americans actually think the law has already been repealed. A quarter of them aren't sure, and only 52% correctly believe that the law is still in place. So, you know, why shouldn't they think that? They elected a new Congress. One of the first acts of the new Congress was to repeal the law, and several judges have declared it unconstitutional in very high-profile cases. So they think, done, we're done with that, move on, let's talk about jobs. The problem is, of course, the huge structure of this law is very much in place and scheduled to take effect mostly in 2014, but phased over that time, including $500 billion in new taxes, which on a fragile and a recovering economy is going to be a significant drag, $500 billion in reductions in payments to Medicare that the chief actuary for Medicare has said are going to significantly impact access to care for seniors mandates on businesses to provide expensive health insurance or to pay fines, mandates on individuals to purchase health insurance or to pay significant fines, uh, certainly in my view an unconstitutional provision. The um, ex huge expansion of Medicaid, as we discussed, that is going to put significant strains and burdens on the states. The Energy and Commerce Committee yesterday released a study saying that the, the law is likely to cost $116 billion more just for the states. And, of course, the fiscal train wreck that Doug Holtz-Aiken writes about so well in this volume as well as in much of his other work that show that the subsidies alone for health insurance are likely to add another trillion dollars to the $450 billion that the Congressional Budget Office expected just for the subsidies for private health insurance because he believes so many companies will have huge incentives to dump health insurance and to put their employees in the exchange. So did we need health insurance? Did we need health insurance reform? Did we need health reform? Absolutely. But I think that we can see the American people really were right in saying this is not it. This does too much, too fast. We need to step back. We need to rethink this. And we need to move forward with the right kind of reform that really fits with our economy and back to one of Scott's central premises that really values the quality of the health system we have and builds on that rather than destroys it and replaces it with something that none of us really know what this is going to look like. So thank you, Michael, for this forum and for inviting me to be on the panel. And Lynn, it's always a pleasure to be with you on a panel. Thank you. <clears throat> well, uh, I would like to start, if I could, by first of all, thanking Michael for inviting me. And it's always a pleasure to be with Grace Marie just about anywhere. Uh, I would like to start by reading the preface, which I find intriguing. 
Uh, it is, you know, from Scott. It says, To my children, Joe and Ben, who, I hope, will remain free from governmental intrusion to be able to exercise personal choices in the pursuit of good health. And I guess the reason I found that so interesting is that, you know, I just sort of wonder sometimes, what is it that makes some people so afraid of us trying to make all Americans have exactly that? The same kind of choices we all sort of take for granted. Like, what, what is it that drives this incredible fear of this, uh, this edifice, that this 2,000 pages and all that? And I guess, you know, obviously part of it is a fear of government, and I understand that, you know. I get that we could have a, an experiment that would end all experimentation. We've got to be careful about that. I get that it's a, somewhat of a fear of possible taxes, especially if the worst possible scenarios of the budget stuff come to play, then, you know, we could indeed saddle our future children with all kinds of, of uh, burdens. But I guess what I find sort of, you know, what I'd like to do, and I know on this table we can do it, and, and that is let's, let's agree that we all do want the same things. I mean, I think that's where Grace Marie started, where we've been going, talking about this for a little longer than we might admit in public, but nevertheless, for some time. We all want the same things here. So, so I just would say let's, let's kind of try to reduce the suspicion. When you get past that, then I think it is useful to start with another question, and that is why do you think the Democrats passed this? Think about it for just a moment from the point of view, I know it's hard in this room, but think about it from the point of view of a Democratic congressman, okay? In 1993, 94, they didn't pass reform and they lost the Congress. This time, they passed reform and they lost the Congress. And if the Republicans had nominated normal people in Nevada and Delaware, they would have lost the Senate too. So they're kind of wondering, what the hell am I supposed to do here, right? And, and, and the deal is, of course, it, it really is true. And those of you who do meet with them a lot, I know, and you know a lot of you do, um, they really are decent people. They love their children and their dogs, and they try to do the right thing. And, 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 and they would much rather deal with something far simpler than health care, like maybe, I don't know, Pakistan, you know, something where it's actually, there's an answer. So, so why did they do this? And you might think, well, you know, they're Democrats, and they always want to do this socialist stuff. And No. It, see, the thing is, because it's the right thing to do might be, might be one answer you would come up with. And that kind of counts for maybe half of the caucus in the House side and maybe 20 percent in the Senate. Bottom line is the reason they did this is because they feel like we've got to pay the Chinese back. And we've got to pay the Chinese back. And the only, there are a couple ways you can do this, right? You could just cut stuff. Lord knows that would be a way. You could just take out the meat cleaver and cut the Medicare benefit package into half and decide we can't afford Medicaid. And let's end, by the way, that open-ended subsidy for employer-sponsored insurance, which subsidizes Bill Gates. You know, that's where. So let's just end all that. We could cut. Or you can guess where I'm headed. Or we can try to realign incentives. Now, I admit Democrats and incentives don't go together all that often, but that's why it's kind of interesting what's really going on here. And, you know, as, as Michael said, I am a veteran of the Clinton days. And uh, I remember, in fact, being at University of Michigan with Bill Niskanen right after the uh, election in 94, which heralded in the Republican Congress. And we had a great time with him celebrating the great victory and me commiserating. It was good wine either way. But anyway, bottom line, you know, what you got here is a situation where, where Democrats are trying to figure out how to make markets work. They don't know. So they need help. 
Okay, but let's look at what the core of this bill is really about. I would submit there are two fundamental things it's about. It's about changing obsolete business models. The first business model that people like me and a lot of people, I think, consider obsolete is risk selection and insurance. Think about it. What do we do? We tell insurers, basically, to protect the healthy from the sick. I don't blame insurers. They're doing exactly what we told them to do. They protect the healthy from the sick and thereby keep premiums low for the healthy as long as you're healthy. But if you get sick, good luck. So what change in the business model means is not putting them out of business, although there were some Democrats who would have done that, I will admit, but they are not a majority. That's kind of my point. Change the business model so that instead of making money by selecting, by protecting the healthy from the sick, what you do is you actually thrive by enabling all enrollees, healthy or sick, to find value in the healthcare system. That is what a concept, become our agent in seeking value in the healthcare system. Because I got to tell you, as much as I'm an economist and believe in consumer sovereignty, healthcare is complicated. And often you're searching for the most important parts of it when you're not exactly 100%. And so it helps to have agents in various forms that are on your side, preferably that are being paid by you so you trust that they're working for you and not others. So that's what an insurer will be in the new world if indeed we get to the new world. And <laughs> I agree, there's some doubt. Okay, the second business model that I would submit is holding us back and making it hard and that the bill attacks head on, or not maybe head on, but sort of obliquely on, and that is fee-for-service medicine. An awful lot of people would argue, and I certainly am among them, that fee-for-service was a wonderful system 100 years ago when it was invented, when a doctor was more likely to kill you than help you. Because fundamentally, you want to make sure you don't get anything in between him and a chance of something that might work. But when you get down to it, what it does is encourage volume and not value. And I think we have allowed ourselves to become way too passive in not evaluating the ultimate quality and outcomes of, of what medical treatments and diagnostic tests are giving us. And we kind of trusted too much, and we probably conferred too much authority and all that stuff. And so we've lost some capacity here. So what pay for volume is about is doing more. What pay for value is about is changing the structure of how you pay them. Again, use incentives to drive behavior in a way that will serve the social interest. In this case, the compelling social interest in getting healthcare cost growth under control. So I submit to you that is the analytic core of what this bill is about. Now there's a lot of stuff, Lord knows 2,000 pages, there's some mischief involved. But I would also just point out 2,000 pages is not a government takeover. A government takeover is two lines. You're all in Medicare. It starts in July. Okay? 2,000 pages is about taking a very complex system and attaching to it a whole bunch of little ideas which add up to these two big ideas, changing these two big business models. But it's not about a government takeover because that would have been far, far simpler and more dangerous. Okay, so I would submit to you that we want to think about it that way, and then I guess what I should do here in my remaining time is kind of have a lightning round on the specifics of this book, which is, I would say, interesting. Um, first, with Scott's initial point, we have the best system in the world. Well, we do have the best system in the world for the things Grace Marie pointed out. Cancer survival, no question. I would even say also this is the best place in the world to have a heart attack. No question. We're real good at big-time expensive interventions. What we're not so good at is managing chronic disease over time. And we're not so good at what I would call efficiency, which is why our spending per capita is so high compared to other countries, which achieve roughly 
similar global outcomes and a little bit better on some, some measures of stuff like life expectancy and stuff like that. So, but the point is not, and I certainly would agree, you know, we shouldn't run around saying the system sucks, but I also would say it's inefficient and it's not delivering high value to everyone. It's not delivering high value everywhere. I would also say you don't really have to go overseas to see better stuff. Better stuff is happening in the United States. The trick of reform is to try to create incentives so that the better stuff spreads as opposed to just exists as these little shining cities on the hill, which they do exist, and we can talk about them in the Q&A. The second chapter is on individual mandate. And I will say it's kind of fascinating to me as an economist to look at the court cases. And my favorite brief, of course, is the one by Ken Cuccinelli in Virginia, because, you know, Grace Marie and I are Virginians, so we, and they have a long history of writing very good briefs in these matters challenging federal law. Well, Cuccinelli's brief, I think, is the best because it fundamentally says this is not about health policy at all. This is about, this is about the power of government. This is about if a government can compel you to buy health insurance, what can it not do? It's a pretty good question, actually, and I would agree. It's interesting constitution. And I look forward to the 5-4 decision that will come down sometime before too long. But I would also say it has nothing to do with health policy, nothing. And Cuccinelli himself has said, as Romney concluded in Massachusetts, there's nothing unconstitutional about an individual mandate at the state level. The only question is really the federal power. So I'm back to, okay, fine, let's let the constitutional thing play out. But what do we really want insurance markets? How do we want them to be organized? And it seems to me you really do have two choices here. And one choice would be to completely deregulate, which I would guess Michael would support. In fact, I think you have written this before, the big high deductible and complete deregulation, sell across state lines. That's an option. And I would say analytically we could all figure out how to make that work. But it will require, if you completely deregulate and therefore allow insurers to exclude the sick or charge the sick what they want, you're going to have to have a place where the sick go. And you're going to have to have what I would call properly funded high-risk pools. We could work that out. That's actually an option. I have noticed no one yet has been willing to fund that at the scale which most people think it would be required to make sure everybody's covered. So that, I think, is, is the question. The alternative model would be to use regulation to, again, change a business model and drive a different kind of equilibrium, but an equilibrium that would allow us to get to everybody being covered at, I would say, in, on a good day, reasonable cost. And that's what prohibiting um, pre-existing condition exclusions is all about. That's what's saying guaranteed issue, you've got to sell to all comers. But I will tell you, as any economist and actuary will, you can't make insurers sell to all comers unless everybody comes, unless you have some mechanism to guarantee that the risk pool is indeed truly balanced. And the only way to make everybody come is to have a mandate. Now, I notice... 85% of us get insurance now. And from what we can tell from all the survey data and all the simulations and so forth, about two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the uninsured are, are basically low income, and we think they will buy if they can get a subsidy to make it affordable. So we're talking about is a relatively small number of people. So all I'm trying to convey to you is that the individual mandate is not some plot to put the jackboot of federal tyranny on the neck of those people living in trees in Idaho. It's really about trying to make private insurance markets work, consistent with the objective of making sure everybody's covered and making sure you don't have uh, uh, you know, discrimination against those who happen to be unlucky. Innovation. I would agree with Scott that anything that is focused on reducing cost growth over time 
as a compelling overriding kind of objective is a threat to innovation. We've got to be very careful here, no question about that. But I would ask you this question. Given that we're going to pay the Chinese back one way or another, would you think innovation would be more threatened by incentive realignment or by big-time cuts in the value of benefit packages over time? Yeah, I thought so. so. So innovation is going to be threatened either way. The question is, how can we do it in a smart way? How can we really pay attention to the incentives? And I, I would submit, and I would guess my co-panelists would agree, we could probably stand to redo all the FDA patent, all that kind of stuff. You know, why, why is a patent 17 years? Anybody know? Because you know? Mr. Jefferson thought it was a nice number for farm implements in the 18th century. Now, T.J. was a smart guy, but there's no way he could anticipate orphan drugs. We might want to reconsider that. We might want to make it 25 years for some kinds of drugs. Anyway, you get the point. So, HSAs. Let me just say, I agree with Grace Marie. I think we should do, and I will undertake to do all I can in my democratic circles, to make sure that the regulations permit HSAs to be the low-end product in innings. I think that'd be, I think it'd be great if some states decided to do just HSAs, other states do other stuff, and let's have a natural experiment. I am totally in favor of that kind of stuff, and I think it should go forward. You know, I think within 60%, look, remember now, the benefit packages in the exchange, benefit packages that are required by the law, the minimum required to satisfy the mandate, 60% actuarial value. Just so you keep in perspective, the Fortune 500 average today is about 80%. So it's a pretty long way from what most people have. I don't see why we can't design an HSA that can hit 60. I don't see why we can't high deductible with an HSA that would do that. So I, I think that's a very, I'm just with you. On CBO scoring, I will notice, much as I respect Doug Holtzikin and uh, Joe Antos and all the others in Rick, Rick Foster, you know, they're fine Americans. But if you look carefully at what they're really criticizing CBO for doing, they're really talking about stuff that's not in the bill that they expect Congress to either do or not do later. And that's kind of a hard standard for CBO to have to meet because they sort of are supposed to score what's in the bill. That's their job. Okay? So I think you can, we can argue about the details, but I, I definitely think you want to be careful. And I would just say the rules are what they are for a very good reason. The rules are what they are to try to make sure that somebody nonpartisan who understands as much as we can understand about what the implications of these choices are, gives us a best guess. And then Congress has to decide which way to go. No one made the CBO the 101st senator, but they did say, if it's going to cost money, by God, you will know about it before you vote. That's really what the deal is. And in their calculations, best estimate is going to reduce the deficit over the first 10 years and the second 10 years. Big uncertainty around that. Lots of stuff got to happen. But what the critiques are really about is stuff that's not in the bill. We can talk about that. Malpractice. I thought Richard Epstein actually had among the more interesting ones, probably because I must say I'm in favor of malpractice form, let it be clear. But I have not invested in all the different permutations of malpractice policy because that plus Chinese language is just too hard for my brain to comprehend. But I will say whatever you all want to do, do it. Just do it. Because um, I know just what Epstein writes. It's probably not going to lower premium all that much, maybe not much at all. We don't really know how much defensive medicine is out there. But what I do know with certainty is that every single doctor, frontal lobe, this is big stuff. And it's big stuff because think about it. These people 
have never made a bee in their lives. They have elephantine memories. They, they go for days without peeing. And, and the idea they're going to be sued, it really bugs them. It, I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big cultural deal. And by the way, it's real money. By the way, it's psychological trauma and could ruin their career for no good reason. So I understand why they would like to have safe harbors. I am totally in favor of safe harbors. Okay? So, and let me just say, though, the reason that's not in the bill, let's be clear, is because Max Baucus, think about it, there's this, even with a 2,000-page bill, there's this big gaping hole, and it's where malpractice should have been. Why isn't it filled? Because he held it open, waiting for the Republican who would come and say, in exchange for my vote, I want malpractice. No Republican came to make that deal. Why, pray tell? I submit because a very serious calculation was made, and I obviously have to admit it was brilliant, and that is, if none of us agree to go along with this and try to change it and make it better, then we can paint it as socialist radicalism and we can run against it. Bingo. I encourage you in your spare time, go back and look at John Chafee's bill in 1993, the one that was co-sponsored by Bob Dole and 14 other Republicans, including Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch. And you will see a bill that was basically about redesigning the small group individual markets into what they call cooperatives we call exchanges. A bill that included individual requirement to purchase insurance. A bill that paid for it by changing the opening the nature of the tax subsidy now and Medicare savings. Yes, friends, Obamacare was a Republican idea before it became socialism. So I'm all in favor of, uh, of, of <laughs> reinventing the malpractice module with bipartisan support. And hopefully after the next election, we can get back to adult conversation. Finally, comparative effectiveness. I think that is one of the issues that seems to me to be the most surprisingly emotional uh, because it's pretty clear no one actually, I mean, read the language, there's no way they're allowed to use it to do anything about change in benefits or anything. It's just for information purposes. How can you oppose information? And only can oppose information if you're afraid of what might happen once the information is known. And that's why I come back to, we gotta, we gotta sort of take a deep breath and reduce the fear here. And I think fundamentally having the comparative information available, have, it, have the priorities determined outside the government, as private as we can get it, Lord knows, but don't stop the production of the information. So I will end where I began. I submit to you that the, that the vision of Scott Atlas, what he wants for his kids in health care, and what Don Berwick and I want are the same thing. We want folks to be able to choose among the best practices available with their clinician to decide what's best for them. We just want everybody to be able to do it, and to do that, we've got to change the business models. Thank you very much. Thank you, Len, and thank you, Grace Marie. Um, when, uh, when you're commenting on a book, at a book forum like this, there's really sort of a formula that uh, I, I've, been, I've been told there's a formula you adhere to that is where you spend most of your time talking about why the book is an important contribution, what it, um, uh, what it contributes to the debate, and then just spend just a little bit of time uh, on how it might be stronger. So I'm gonna try to stick to that formula. 
Uh, first, uh, the important contributions that it makes. The first, uh, I, uh, and Grace Marie sort of touched on this. I think the you know one of the book's greatest strengths is it does uh, highlight the work of two Cato adjunct scholars, Richard Epstein, uh, who's a professor of law now at New York University, and Glenn Whitman, an economist at uh, Cal State Northridge. Um, each contribute a chapter. Um, I think that the book frames the debate over Obamacare really and, and the essence of uh, Obamacare really well um, in the preface when it says when, uh, Americans under this law will be forced to buy insurance they may not want or value. Businesses will be fined unless they acquiesce to government dictates about the composition, structure, and breadth of health insurance benefits. Coverage must be certified as acceptable by government not by the individuals and their families who receive the insurance. Private insurance companies will be forced to price their products by according to government fiat rather than market forces. And doctors will be compelled to accept lower prices for medical care based solely on what bureaucrats determine to be appropriate. Um, it, it also mentions that under something, a, a development that we've already seen uh, happen, uh, a result of this law that's already unfolded um, for really, I think, a million or more Americans at least, under Obamacare, um, the book tells us, many Americans will certainly lose their current insurance and thus access to their chosen doctors. When you're thrown out of your health insurance plan because of, uh, because of Obamacare, as nearly a million Americans were when Principal Financial Group left the market as a result of this law, that interrupts your continuity of care. That jeopardizes uh, your relationship with your doctor. Uh, these charges about people losing their current health insurance and their uh, access to their doctor, they're powerful not just because they scare people, but also because they're true. Uh, the book reminds us that um, when it comes to uh, uh, denying coverage to or denying coverage for services, uh, Medicare actually denies more claims than private insurance companies do. It reminds us that the adverse select <coughs> excuse me that this law's price controls that Obamacare imposes on health insurance actually. Um, unleash a problem that markets largely solve. That's the uh, problem of adverse selection. Uh, adverse uh, markets solve the problem of adverse selection uh, by allowing insurance companies to price health insurance according to risk, creating an incentive for people to purchase insurance while they're still healthy. Uh, this law, by imposing price controls on health insurance, telling insurance companies that uh, for a person of a given age, they have to uh, charge healthy and sick people alike, whether an actuarially fair pre charge healthy and sick people the same premium, whether an actuarially fair premium is $5,000 or $50,000. When the government does that, that's a price control. And as price controls have done throughout thousands of years of human history, uh, these ones are going to cause more human misery than they alleviate. As an example, we, can, we need only look to the child-only health insurance markets in 20 or 37 states. I think 20 is the number of states who now have no child-only health insurance market as a result of Obamacare. And another 17 states have seen insurers drop out of that market, and maybe the, all insurers will drop out of that market soon. This is a result of Obamacare's pr the price controls that have already taken effect, and uh, those price controls will go market-wide if Obamacare is still on the books in 2014. Also, as a result of these price controls, Glenn Whitman reminds us that uh, premiums for young and healthy people are going to rise. If you want to charge the $5,000 patients and the $50,000 patients the same premiums, well, that means the premiums for the $5,000 patients are going to rise. Uh, looking at just a, number, just a few factors, Whitman points out that premiums for people under the age of 35 can be expected to rise by 17%. Um, 
and will rise by more than that as once uh, all the factors, all, all the, uh, uh, the price controls take full effect. Also, as a result of adverse selection, we've seen uh, how, or in response to these sorts of price controls, we have seen how healthy people react when they're forced to live under this sort of uh, uh, a, a regime of government price controls. In Massachusetts, where we already have uh, a law that is essentially identical to Obamacare, um, the number of people who drop their health insurance uh, within six months of signing up for it quadrupled in the two years since uh, Massachusetts enacted what we call Romney Care, which is the uh, which is a predecessor of Obamacare. These are people who know that you know once the government tells insurance companies they have to charge every. Uh, applicant the same premium regardless of their health status. They know that they can wait until they are sick to buy health insurance, sign up, they get the same premiums as everyone else, and as soon as they've got the medical care that they need, they stop paying premiums and stop paying into the pool. Uh, and it's still worthwhile for them to do so, even though they uh, might be paying the penalty for not carrying insurance because the penalty is so much lower under both Romneycare and Obamacare than the premiums that they're mandated to purchase. <coughs> the individual mandate in, uh, in, the, in this law will stifle innovation because any new way of delivering, uh, of, of financing medical care, any new way of, uh, of, of paying uh, doctors, hospitals, and other, um, and, and other healthcare providers will have to fit into the, the, the definition of a, uh, an acceptable health insurance policy that's issued by the government. So think not only of what that means in terms of uh, people having to purchase perhaps more coverage than, their purchase than they would prefer to purchase. But remember that with this law on the books, anytime someone innovates with a new way of uh, designing health insurance that threatens someone else's business model, well, that threatened insurance company can go to the government and lobby for uh, a change to the uh, minimum, uh, to the definition of acceptable coverage under the individual mandate that will block that sort of innovation. It becomes a tool uh, not just for for rent-seeking by providers who want their services to be covered, but also for blocking innovation and insurance design. And uh, I think that uh, uh, Glenn Whitman makes another excellent point when he, uh, when he challenges the widespread idea that the mandate uh, is essential to prevent cost shifting from the insured to the uninsured. It's a curious claim to be making, uh, I'm sorry, from the uninsured to the insured. It's a curious claim to be making about the individual mandate because the mandate itself is an attempt to shift costs from, um, from higher cost patients who are generally older and have higher incomes to lower cost patients who are generally uh, younger and have uh, lower incomes. Um, another important contribution, uh, Helen Evans in her chapter on comparative effectiveness tells us, although, this is a quote, although the president has, and his congressional supporters deny it, the fact is that Government-controlled rationing of health care is central to the Obama health plan. Indeed, that's the entire purpose of the Independent Payment Advisory Board. We might as well call that Obamacare's rationing board. It's their job to make adjustments to uh, Medicare's scheme of price and exchange controls that will keep Medicare spending growing uh, within, certain, uh, within certain limits. No, this is not the sort of death panels rationing that Sarah Palin was talking about when she, uh, where the government tells patient A, you will not get this pill, and patient B, you will not get that surgery. 
But when the government sets prices for all, for the pills and for the surgeries and sets those prices below where they are right now, where a competitive market might set them, the government is a, is a, implicitly rationing those services because some providers won't offer them as a result of the prices being set lower, and therefore some patients won't get them. So when Rick Foster, the chief Medicare actuary, estimates that 15 percent of, uh, of Part A providers, that's hospitals and other healthcare facilities, will stop participating in Medicare. In other words, seniors won't be able to take their, uh, uh, their Medicare coverage to those hospitals. What he's saying is that the price controls in Obamacare are going to ration care to seniors. Another uh, crucial contribution is Douglas Holtz-Aiken's chapter on the, uh, on the impact the, that Obamacare will have on the deficit. He tells us that no matter, regardless of what the Congressional Budget Office says, uh, or I'm sorry, regardless of what the official cost estimates say, regardless of what supporters of this law say, uh, this law is not going to reduce the deficit. It's going to increase the deficit probably by half a trillion dollars or more over the next 10 years. And that's because, as Len mentioned, a lot of these, uh, well, the, the first reason is there's a lot of spending um, that uh, takes place under this, under this law as a result of this law that isn't counted in those official scores. Second, as Len mentions, there are a lot of provisions of this law that are just implausible. Uh, they're not politically feasible. They were enacted in order to show savings, even though we know that those savings won't realize won't be realized because future Congresses will come back and undo them, much as they've undone the supposed savings that were supposed to result from the so-called sustainable growth rate formula used to set the price controls that Medicare uses to pay physicians. Um, every time those price that sustainable growth rate was supposed to bite, uh, it was going was gonna to bite physician payments, Congress rescinded them and still hasn't enacted what uh, people are calling a permanent dock fix. But there, there are multiple provisions. One of them is the rationing board, the independent payment advisory board. The other is the adjustments or, or the ratcheting down of the price controls Medicare uses to pay hospitals, uh, the, uh, the price controls that Medicare uses to pay private Medicare Advantage plans, and so forth. Uh, the excise tax on uh, Cadillac plans that's supposed to take effect in 2018. This is uh, something that just barely got enacted. It's not going to take effect until President Obama's successor, possibly even two successors, uh, 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 have, have occupied that office. Um, and that's very unlikely to, 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 uh, to be maintained. Uh, the, the law also double counts premiums for the Class Act, which, um, which, which Grace Marie mentioned. And probably does lowball the, the, the cost of the new entitlement program for uh, subsidies to purchase private health insurance in Obamacare's exchanges. Uh, Doug th estimates, and I think that it's reasonable, that that could cost up to three times what the Congressional Budget Office estimates. Now, Len um, is correct that critics are pointing to stuff that is not in the bill. And it's difficult to, to ask the Congressional Budget Office to score the uh, impacts uh, uh, the impact of actions that Congress may take in the future. But you might be surprised to know that the, the, the Congressional Budget Office does this all the time. They know that Congress has, tries to game their budget rules by assuming savings in the future or tax revenues in the future that are politically infeasible. And so they come up with what they call their alternate budget scenario, uh, where they come up with a guesstimate of what Congress is actually going to do, and they project what the budget, what the what uh, government, government revenues and spending are going to look like under that much more politically feasible scenario. Um, I think a, 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 a very powerful chapter of this book is a chapter that reminds us, uh, it's by Roger Stark, um, a physician from Washington State, 
that, re- and it remi- that reminds us that we've been here before. These aren't new ideas that Obamacare has, is, is pushing on the American public. These are the same tired old ideas of tax and spend, government price controls, and government mandates. When Washington state tried some of these reforms, they found 14 health insurance carriers left the state. Uh, Premiums uh, rose by 40 percent among some insurance companies, and the number of uninsured actually rose by 20 percent until – and there was such – there was such a revolt against these price controls and other provisions that uh, that by – that within – I think it was a year, the governor had to repeal major parts of – that legislation. In Oregon, they uh, expanded their Medicaid program, saw the cost of that Medicaid program double in uh, 1994. Um, when the price controls appeared uh, to be insufficient, insurance, uh, insurers dropped out. Uh, the cost far exceeded, I think, the projections there, as well as in Tennessee's 10-care program. Their Medicaid expansion proved a costly mess. They ended up having to dump 160,000 people out of that program. Hawaii's Keiki Care program, which was for kids, saw a massive crowd out of private health insurance. In Maine, the Dirigo program, uh, Dirigo is Maine's motto, it means I lead. The Dirigo program uh, expanded access to uh, government subsidized health insurance. it, its cost ballooned out of control. They enacted taxes in order to, uh, to try to meet that cost. Um, those taxes were soon repealed um, uh, in a referendum, and they've had to cut off uh, enrollment in that program because uh, because the costs have uh, exceeded the state's ability to pay for it. And then there's, there's the granddaddy of all state experiments, Romney Care, which Massachusetts enacted in 2006. Waiting times uh, to see a physician have doubled in Massachusetts. Premiums have risen in the small group by 6%, it has been estimated, as a direct result of this law. So rather than getting everyone into the pool and seeing premiums come down, premiums have actually risen. The state is struggling to meet the cost of this program uh, on their own, uh, the, the, the cost that it imposes on their own budgets. They're looking at, um, at implicit rationing tools like price controls on health insurance premiums and um, uh, exchange controls like dictating to the entire healthcare market in Massachusetts, they have to use global budgeting, uh, and explicit rationing, uh, where the government tell, makes value-based purchasing decisions, essentially telling insurers what they will and will not cover. These ideas haven't been adopted yet, but uh, I think um, uh, most of them have not been adopted yet, but these are the ideas that Governor Deval Patrick recently told Congress are the exciting cost control ideas that they're, they're looking at in Massachusetts. Um, this book also does a service in showing us, uh, in reminding us that um, that a healthcare system does not have to be explicitly public in order to be government-run. Uh, the chapter on Canada's healthcare system reminds us that physicians uh, in Canada are primarily private contractors. That Canadian hospitals are nominally private, not-for-profit entities. You may recall that not. Uh, a little before the new year, the fact-checking organization PolitiFact declared uh, 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 that uh, the claim that Obamacare is a government takeover of healthcare to be their lie of the year for 2010. Well, according to their own criteria, that um, it would be a lie then to say that Canada's socialized healthcare system is a government is, uh, is a system where the government has taken over healthcare because. Uh, physicians are nominally uh, are, are nominally private contractors, and hospitals are nominally private institutions. Um, so, 
it's uh, so I think that's another important contribution. But perhaps uh, the contribution, uh, the greatest contribution, I think this book makes, is when uh, it, re- it it tells us that um, policymakers should not promise uh, universal coverage; that that should not be the goal of healthcare reform, because the moment that government sets about the task of trying to ensure everybody cost rise, quality. Uh, quality suffers, and access to health care becomes less secure. So what are, the, what are the areas where I think this book might have done uh, a little bit better? One is it speaks of Obamacare as a fundamental transformation of American health care. I don't think it's a fundamental transformation. If you think about it, the government already owned the market for uh, one-third of the market for health insurance, does one uh, or spends one-half of uh, uh, of every dollar spent on healthcare in this country, uh, exerts incredible amounts of control over the healthcare sector through other means, uh, including the tax code and ver- various regulations. Uh, I think that more than, I like to say that the greatest trick that advocates of socialized medicine ever played was to convince the American public that we don't already have it. I don't think that uh, that Obamacare fundamentally transforms America's healthcare sector so much as completes that fundamental transformation to socialized medicine. Uh, I think that the book does take something of a kid in the candy store, kid in a candy store approach to um, to medical innovation. Yes, we do lead the world in medical innovation. The Cato Institute published a study uh, by Glenn Whitman and a, and a co-author about that. But a lot of those medical innovations are uh, uh, are are delivered to patients who don't benefit from them, which is where a lot of our wasteful medical spending comes from. I think it's also inaccurate to say that the problem with uh, the uh, with the Obamacare rationing board, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, is that it will increase uncertainty about how products are reimbursed, products like medical devices and drugs. If you think about it, in a free market, you would have uncertainty about how new medical devices and drugs are going to be reimbursed in the future. Because you don't know who's looking over your shoulder, who's going to be the, uh, the guy or gal with the new way of dramatically reducing the cost of treating a certain ailment or delivering a certain health outcome. We want that kind of uncertainty. We want that because that pushes people to innovate. It pushes people to drive costs down. The problem with the Independent Payment Advisory Board is that is, is not that it will create uncertainty about prices, it's that it will get the prices wrong and has no mechanism to correct them, uh, at, whereas markets would get the, those prices right and always push them in the right direction. Um, the book spends a good bit of time talking about comparative effectiveness research. And I think that there's, it actually makes sense why a lot of people are scared of this research because they think it will be used as a tool for rationing care, ultimately. But I think that it should, uh, it bears mentioning that the history of comparative effect, or at least government-funded comparative effectiveness research in this, in this country points to a different conclusion, that, uh, that the provisions in both the stimulus package and Obamacare to fund government, uh, government-provided comparative effectiveness research are ultimately going to uh, be eliminated because they're going to threaten the income stream of people whose, uh, the quality of providers, the quality of whose services are called into question. We've been down this road before. I've been able to find uh, uh, about uh, half, uh, almost half a dozen examples of Congress creating agencies def- uh, dedicated to comparative effectiveness research, and they never last because as soon as they produce useful research, stuff that sh- says, actually, this surgery does not work as well as just watchful waiting does, then the people who provide that surgery lobby Congress to have the agency defunded. Comparative effectiveness research is important, but this bill isn't going to deliver it to us. 
And finally, I think that uh, the book, uh, uh, like many conservatives and other advocates of free markets do, gives a little too much credence to health savings accounts. Um, when it talks about how the Healthy Indiana Plan, uh, by expanding Medicaid and making health savings accounts available to, uh, to, to people enrolled in Medicaid, uh, is, is a positive step. Um, in, instead of providing health insurance uh, to these Medicaid, just health insurance to these Medicaid enrollees, what the Healthy Indiana Plan does is it provides them catastrophic health insurance plus money from the government uh, in an account that's a lot like cash which, if you think about it, is much more attractive because that gives uh, the enrollee a lot more control over that, how that money is spent. So whereas health savings accounts are, and, and enrollment in the Healthy Indiana Plan has been robust, they've enrolled, I think, 60,000 people, they've got a, fit, a waiting list 50,000 people uh, long, it makes sense because it's a more attractive form of government-run health care than the traditional Medicaid program. So rather than, whereas health savings accounts are supposed to make people, or are supposed to reduce dependence on government, in Indiana they're being used to increase dependence on government, and I think we should uh, address that with a little more skepticism. So I think I've gone over my time, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to responding to a lot of the stuff that Len said. I hope that it comes up in the question and answer period. Um, we'll go ahead and start that now. I'll sit down to, to do it. Uh, I'll ask people before you ask uh, uh, your question, and please do make sure it is a question, um, give uh, your name and your affiliation. And um, with that, uh, how about we uh, give the microphone first to the woman behind the camera. My name is Li Yang. Uh, I have a lot of problem about our capitalism and about our private insurance, whether it is a car insurance or even whether it is a, a pension fund. The problem is nobody addresses this. And even Obamacare, nobody addresses this. But I think they just try to say not to say that but the problem is there, and that's why the main reason to have a universal health care is to try to address those issues without really apparently saying it. So what I try to say is that now our capitalism is really not a capitalism. What we have is really robberism, because every resource that you have, whether it's pension or whether it's a uh, 401k or whether government pension, whatever you have, eventually will be robbed away. So now if you don't have insurance, you are not going to be protected. So I really support the health insurance and the social cost. At the beginning, especially at this deficit time, it seems tremendous. But if you think about the cost and benefit, that's very minimum. You just think about private insurance, and you cannot even read there. Fine I'm print. not sure what your question is. My question is, you have to address those fine print in the health insurance. If you cannot, it means it's almost useless. And your health is at the hand of somebody, private provider or insurance or their brokers. I, so I, if, if, if you have any way they address this type of issues, and uh, first of all, I have to say where the capitalism will take care how about, of how about we take that? How about, how about we take that comment right there? Um, did yeah. that, would anyone like to respond to that? Can I? It's sort of a, a way of, of addressing your one of your key points, and also um, addressing something that that Lynn said about an individual mandate is required in order to get everybody into the system. 
and that's really the only way to do it. And I, I think there really were other ways to, to get health insurance to everyone. First of all, this, this law misses the mark by somewhere between 21 and 23 million people. I spoke in Europe not long after the law was passed and was pointing out some of my concerns with it and said, you know, that there, it, it covers 32 million more people, according to CBO, but leaves about 20 to 25 million people out. And they were astonished. They said, this is supposed to be universal coverage. There are only, what, 60, 60 million people that live in the UK. That was a huge number to them. So even with the mandate, even with spending somewhere between $1 trillion and $2.5 trillion, we're still not going to get to universal coverage. So what could have been a different way to do that? I think one of the, the real dilemmas that we have in this country is that, yes, people are angry with health insurance companies. And I think they've been saying, we're going to punish them, we're going to regulate them, but we, want, we don't want government-run health insurance. We still want private insurance. So how do you do that in a way that really provides incentives for people to get the insurance that most people want health insurance? As President Obama himself said, it's not that people don't want health insurance, it's they can't afford it. So how do we get to, to a system of near universal coverage, and I believe you could do that with a system of refundable tax credits and credits that allow people to have resources to purchase health insurance, move the money around in a different way, and give people an incentive to purchase that coverage rather than penalize them if they don't. It's just not going to work, especially a $695 penalty. Michael, if I could just add to the point about not being able to understand the language that's in the the specific coverages and so forth. Um, one of the, I would say, the biggest changes that this law would bring, and I agree with Michael, it's not a fundamental transformation, but the change it would bring to the system would be an imp increased transparency about what actually is your insurance uh, package. Now, that comes with some stuff I don't really like. I don't like the, the medical loss ratio regulation. I think you could have had it reveal without regulating it. You know, but I wasn't in charge. I just advised them. Um, but I do think that transparency is much more likely to be present post-implementation than today. And one of the reasons for an essential benefits package being defined as the floor is so there will be no dispute about a certain set of things that will be covered. So you won't have to sort of look to the frying print to see what is covered. That's really part of the deal. Now, there's a trade-off involved because when you specify a minimum, First of all, it could be set too high and it could be too costly and contradict all our goals. Or it could be, um, you know, fundamentally uh, so whatever, it makes it very difficult to design innovative packages, as Michael said. So you've got to be careful. There's a trade-off involved. But nevertheless, transparency through the bill should address some of what you're concerned about in understanding what's in an insurance policy. And I just add that there's, a, there's going to be a, a big print problem as well as a fine print problem. The big print problem is going to be that there's going to be a lot of coverage in this plan that you don't want. There's going to be a lot of things that a lot of people are, uh, are required to purchase that they don't need and would rather do without. And so that's, so, so that's, and that the biggest, you know, big print problem is going to be the price tag um, on, on, this, on this mandated coverage. The fine print problem, I think, is going to get worse as a result of this law. And that's a direct result of the price controls that, uh, that, that, that I think are really at the heart of this law and, and are, are the beginning of all the problems that it causes. And, and Len disagrees. He, he thinks that those provisions are, are important um, for a functioning market. But 
again, I'll bring you back to the $5,000 patient and the $50,000 patient. Um, if an insurance company is getting paid $10,000, or if the insurance company has to charge both of them the same premium, let's say it's $10,000, then they have a $40,000 incentive to put whatever they need to put in the fine print that will, uh, that will keep them from having to pay claims to the $50,000 patients and encourage them to go elsewhere. It's an enormous incentive uh, to, uh, to avoid, dump, and mistreat uh, the highest cost patients that this law creates. Uh, it's like, like most price controls. You can, you can change what, uh, what uh, the government can uh, change the prices that pr uh, producers charge, but they don't change the underlying economic reasons for those prices. And so, so people try to respond to them in, in other ways. So there's still going to be discrimination against sick people. It's going to be this sub rosa sort of discrimination. And the authors of this law are aware of that. And, they, and so they put regulations in there that are supposed to prevent them from doing this. And they put in a risk adjustment scheme that's going to tax all health care providers and try to, I'm sorry, all health insurance companies and try to uh, subsidize the ones that get the sickest patients. But even the Congressional Budget Office said that current risk adjustment methods only uh, can capture 25% of that variation, so it's only 25% of the problem. You could address all of it, but premiums are going to go sky high if you do that. So there's so so th they're aware of this problem. It's there, and it's going to, uh, I think, exacerbate that fine print issue that you're concerned about. Yeah. How about we go with Roger? This is Roger Pallon, the director of our Center for Constitutional Studies. So I don't Sorry, Vice President. So I don't have to introduce myself. Thank you, Michael. My question is for Mr. Nichols. You began and ended your remarks by citing the uh, dedication of uh, Scott At Atlas uh, to his children, hoping that uh, they would be able to exercise personal choices in pursuit of good health. And yet so much of what I heard from you would result in actually reducing those choices. Let me just give you two quick examples. You spoke of uh, the reduction of uh, the patent uh, of 17 years. Well, that will be a disincentive to invest in the R&D that would be necessary to create modern miracle drugs and therefore reduce choices down the road. You spoke of the individual mandate as a second item and the need for that. I would, if I were in the private market, want to buy a policy that had, say, maybe a $20,000 deductible. But of course, under Obamacare, I wouldn't be allowed to, to buy such a policy. And the reason is because it would, there, it would not allow for the cost shifting that would be required, uh, and which is why the individual mandate is being, is being uh, uh, required. And so there, too, that choice would be denied to me. So how is it that we can even think about uh, expanding choices or, or subscribing to the sentiment in this dedication if so many of the kinds of proposals that you put forward would actually reduce choices? Well, let's start with the uh, innovation point. Um, what I was saying, I believe, what I was trying to say, maybe I didn't say it very clearly, was that um, Scott Gottlieb's chapter worries that reform of this nature, that is, it tries to get everybody to have access to the same care we want, will stifle innovation because of the rules and regulations and price controls that Michael's talked about. Um, and what I was saying was, look, we're going to have to pay the Chinese back one way or the other. We're either going to cut without enrollment expansion or we're going to cut with enrollment expansion which do you think is going to be better for the health industry? And what I'm trying to say is I do believe within this, the, con, the, the sort of construct of this bill 
there's a tremendous amount of potential, and I would definitely agree it's potential, to realign incentives, starting with using Medicare as the biggest buyer that we've got now. Michael's right. It buys a big chunk of what we're paying for now. Therefore, it's big enough to actually change the way providers think about what is in their interest. And so it has the potential of allowing us to move from fee-for-service to a more global payment, which will have potentially the effect of linking incentives to what we want. Now, what that ought to signal, the innovators, is a different kind of innovation will suddenly be valuable, and therefore they're very likely to change their focus. Today, they basically know Medicare will pay for anything that beats a placebo. That's probably not going to be true if we do indeed go forward and pay the Chinese back. Again, whether you do it through incentive, through incentive realignment as Obamacare or whether you do it through just cutting the benefit package, which is Plan B. So I submit a world that focuses on getting the incentives right, and I was not recommending reducing the 17 years. I actually suggested we increase it for certain kinds of, of devices and drugs. I think that it's appropriate to reexamine all of that stuff. So I think, in fact, there's a way to go. On the individual mandate, I would submit, it is the only way I can think of, although I'm certainly willing to let Grace Marie experiment in Utah or wherever we can talk them into it. Let's try another version. But you talk to insurers, and they're pretty clear. If they're going to have to sell to all comers, they want a guarantee that the risk pool is balanced. Now, Massachusetts has achieved 97% coverage, at least as far as we can tell. And they don't seem to have an adverse selection problem. They have other problems. They don't have that problem. So maybe that's enough. So maybe you don't need an airtight mandate. CBO basically concluded, and again, we don't know. These are, these are unknowns, empirical things. They concluded 94% coverage, which is why you got the 20-something million Grace Marie talked about left out. The 94% coverage was enough to prevent adverse selection. So we don't have to get all the way to 100. But either way, we're talking about bringing 30, 35 million more people onto the paid insurance rolls, therefore increase their purchasing power. That should increase the demand for innovation over time, not to reduce it. You know, I really wish they would have put Lynn in charge of writing this. If he really believes that the law really is primarily about seeking value in health care and reforming the fee-for-service Medicare the medical system, I've, we're, you know, that's absolutely what we would all agree on. But this law does so much more than that. And if Doug Holtzakon were here, he would be literally leaping out of his seat saying, we are not going to be able to pay the Chinese back because we paid the past this law. We all know that this law was full of an incredible number of gimmicks and double counting of revenues to pretend that it reduces the deficit by $128 billion over 10 years. They've double counted savings in Medicare. They're in Medicare. They've created this class act, which is double spending that money. They're saying we're going to spend the money on, on, on the cost of this law, therefore on um, expenditures for expansion of coverage. And we're also then going to have those same reserves when we need them to pay out benefits five years hence. So there are any number of provisions in this law that were designed to pass the law not to make either overall health spending lower or to make health care costs go down. The, this is a fiscal, to quote Doug Holtzakin, this is an approaching fiscal train wreck, and Obamacare makes it much worse. This is not going to help with the Chinese. And when you look at 
what, a, what, what is the main tool that hospitals and others are so excited about with um, Medicare spending, the accountable care organizations. You know, when you look at the details of those, companies are supposed to spend millions of dollars setting up these new organizations that do not exist yet in the hope that the government is going to share some of its savings with them as yet undetermined, and seniors are going to be assigned to these new accountable care organizations, often without their knowledge, just based upon which physician they're seeing, and their physician is going to have divided loyalties. His incentive with the accountable care organization may be to say, you know, why don't we just wait to see whether or not um, you get better without this expensive medication or this surgery or this new diagnostic test. And only the later is the senior going to find out that maybe he was doing that because he needed to save money for the accountable care organization. As soon as seniors find out about that, the roof is going to blow off of this. And seniors, by the way can go still go see any doctor they want to, and it penalizes the accountable care organization in which they're swept up in. So this is, I just, it's really hard for me to see how the structures in this law are going to work to save money either at the micro level or the macro level. And I just ask us to think, when has government ever gotten this right in running the healthcare system better then that marketplace, absolutely it needs reform, but I just, I believe in the market, not the government to do this. As far as, um, as, far as paying off the, the Chinese, only in Washington, D.C. is creating two new entitlement programs considered a strategy for paying down debt. <laughs> um, I had a different reaction when I looked at uh, the preface I, I, uh, uh, that, that, that Len read. Um, I'm sorry, not the preface, but the, uh, the epigram. Uh, to my children, Joe and Ben, who I hope will remain free from government, free, remain free from government intrusion to be able to exercise personal choices in pursuit of good health. And I'm thinking free from government intrusion. Whose children are these? Where, where, do these, where do these children live? They certainly don't live in this country because um, if they grow up in this country, they're, they're going to be denied, they're likely to be denied their choice of private health insurance as a result of state mandates, state mandated benefits, even if we didn't have Obamacare on the books. Um, there's, a, there's a huge federal tax penalty on people who, want to, who might want to purchase secure health insurance that stays with them from job to job. They might not be free to, uh, to do that as a result. Uh, they're not free to choose their own health insurance plan in retirement. The Medicare program uh, chooses that for them. They're uh, not free to choose how to provide health care for the poor. Um, they're, the, just as they're uh, uh, funding the Medicare program is mandatory, the taxes they pay for uh, the Medicaid program are mandatory as well. So they're not free to choose that. They're not free to choose, uh, in, in many cases, you know, between uh, all sorts of providers like retail clinics or integrated prepaid group plans because all sorts of government regulations block their uh, uh, block these forms of competition and put them out of reach of people. So uh, I think that the 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 problem that was I said before this is not Obamacare is not so much a fundamental transformation of America's healthcare sector as a completion of that fundamental transformation away from a free market toward one that's dominated by government. 
uh, and unlike Grace Marie, I don't think I can get on board with Len writing or rewriting this law. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love you. That's why I have you here. But I, I write it in the first but, place. But, the, but, you know, the, global, uh, the idea of moving Medicare away from fee-for-service is something like global payments um, has, I think, a, a superficial appeal. But when you think about it, the fee-for-service payment system has one set of incentives, some of them virtuous, some of them perverse. You get access to uh, uh, lots of different doctors. They're encouraged to provide you all necessary medical care, but some perverse incentives too, like they're encouraged to provide you unnecessary me medical care as well, because they get paid for that. And there's not much of a dis disincentive, uh, or not enough really of, an of a disincentive to avoid medical errors, because if you're injured by a medical error, you require more services, they get paid more for that. Uh, and that's how, that's how Medicare works. If you look at global payments, they are required, or they, the global payments encourage doctors to provide you all, um, uh, to avoid unnecessary medical services, but there's also a financial incentive there for them to avoid necessary medical services. So both of these are a mixed bag. And if you move from fee-for-service to uh, uh, to global payment system in Medicare, you're just going to be trading the perverse incentives of one for the perverse incentives of another. Uh, the, the perverse incentives that the U.S. Medicare system has right now, for example, for the perverse incentives in Canada's Medicare system, which uses global payments to a large extent. So I'm not really interested in just trading one set of perverse incentives for another, I'm interested in a system that will reduce all the harms caused by each of these uh, payment systems. And the way you do that is by competition, open competition between them. And you just can't have that by tweaking Medicare's price and exchange controls. Um, but I don't think that those, uh, that those changes are even have a hope of making it through. I don't think that Obamacare is actually going to result in the sort of delivery system reforms that Lynn would like to see. And the reason is that those delivery system reforms, by definition, if they're going to improve quality, if they're going to reduce costs, they're going to threaten someone's income stream, uh, the, the income stream of low-quality providers or, um, or, or, uh, or what have you. And every, every dollar of healthcare spending is a dollar of income to somebody that somebody has a lobbyist. So when you try to shut that off through better business models or, or whatever reform, you're going to hear from those lobbyists, and they're going to completely defang those, uh, those reforms, as they always have. You know, I, I, I say that uh, um, uh, the graveyards in Washington, D.C. are filled with agencies that have, tr government agencies that have tried to produce if, uh, useful comparative effectiveness research um, that are ultimately uh, eliminated under intense lobbying from the healthcare industry. The same is true of Medicare innovations. When Medicare pilot programs don't work, as most of them don't, they, they just die. But when they do work, they, st they still die because they threaten someone's income stream and lobbyists. Uh, lobby to have them eliminated. So I don't have any faith that Obamacare is going to improve on the dimensions of quality and cost the way Lynn thinks that they're going to. If I could just add 30 seconds, and, and that would simply be that, that, that Michael does an eloquent job of painting the failures of Medicare past. All I would suggest is that, you know, are we going to do, are we going to get more cooperation from the delivery system in changing, in, in changing their behavior, reducing cost growth? with coverage expansion or without. If we don't do coverage expansion, look, two-thirds of hospitals lose money on Medicare now. Two-thirds. A hundred percent lose money on Medicaid. So if all we do is change public sector payment and or reduce public sector payment, what are they going to do? It's, it would be wonderful if every market was perfectly competitive. You know, an awful lot of evidence has been, an awful lot of energy has been spent trying to figure out how competitive is a hospital market. And I tend to think what MedPAC does, the Medi Medicare Pricing Advisory Committee does in monitoring all these things is as good as we've got right now. 
And they basically concluded about two-thirds of our markets are not very competitive at all. And they infer that by looking at the margins that hospitals earn. Even though they lose money on Medicare, they way more than make it up in the private sector because they basically charge the private sector way more than cost because they can because there's not effective competition for them at that, at that spot of care. So if we don't allow coverage expansion, they're just going to use market power and, and make it all worse for the private sector. So that's why it's got to go together. Anyway. But, but, Lynn, half of the coverage expansion is Medicaid, which pays way, way below. I mean, that's one of the problems we have now is that Medicaid pays so little. Right. And, and Medicare is on a track to pay less than Medicaid if we allow the financing scheme in this law to take place. So it's not a solution. Once well, again, you've okay, got to by, have competition. Uh, by by, by right. Grace Marie's own recommendation, I'm going to cut off this discussion because we're still on Roger's question. And I think other people want to ask uh, questions. So, sir, I'll ask you to identify yourself, state your question, and we'll just have one of us answer so that we okay. can get through more of these questions quickly. Uh, Pat Spann, just rec uh, myself. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, and I had to make a decision by June on Medicare B, but that's another story. Um, I'm old enough to remember when um, medical uh, health care, you know, service, you, you just paid for it. My parents didn't have insurance. They paid the doctor, and he actually came to the house when I was sick. But um, I guess, I don't know if one of you, but someone could tell, explain to me, when did health care... Service, not paying for it, but the healthcare service become um, something other than a normal service or commodity like anything else in our country. That it be, was it was it uh, Johnson years and the uh, the Medicare and Medicaid that that all of a sudden it became some sort of high high end quality healthcare became some sort of right for everybody. I mean, I don't have a right to buy a Mercedes if I can't afford it. I, I just don't understand. When did that happen and why did it happen? Was it the 60s? What, what caused, what caused health care to suddenly become a, a God-given right uh, for everybody, American? Well, I think we're still, I think we're still debating it, actually. I, I think that the, some people think it should be a right. I tend to think, actually, it's more an obligation of the community to make it possible for everyone to actually get the health care they truly need. That means you got to do a lot of stuff, but that's what I wake up in the morning from Leviticus. That's where I come, and I'll meet you with wine and tell you about Leviticus. But bottom line, that's, that debate is still going on. What the Great Society did was give it to the elderly and the poor, and uh, we've been arguing about whether everyone should have it ever since. How about we'll take one from this side. Uh, Dale Johnson, freelance writer. A uh, question for Professor Nichols. Um, I'm a strong supporter of health savings accounts, and, and I'm happy that you support them, but I, I'm, I'm afraid that too many people that wrote the Obamacare law aren't similar supporters. I mean, the, the, the old quip from Henry Ford was, you can have any color Model T you want as long as it's black. We're already seeing unions that supposedly needed the, the Cadillac tax because they had such great uh, health care plans. They're more than half the people getting exemptions from the Obamacare mandates because they don't meet the minimum standards. Will my health savings account be wiped out in the future because it doesn't cover gender assignment surgery or it doesn't cover in vitro fertilization? It, will there be any choice left once Obamacare mandates something that looks like the worst of the state mandates amalgamated together? I, I think I would say that's one of the legitimate fears. 
that's out there, and that is what is the benefit package going to be. But, but just to clarify from the way the bill is structured, what you're looking at now is basically two separate houses of Congress's vision about what should be that sort of came together. They fully expected to have a conference, but Scott Brown's election kind of got in the way, and that conference was going to allow them, if you will, to take the metaphor, connect the ramps of the interstates that don't quite connect. So the House did indeed try to foreclose health savings accounts as an option. The Senate very much wanted it to be an option. So you've got this kind of disconnect in the way, and that's why the actuarial value minimum is 60%, which should permit a reasonable package to be constructed. But all the focus is on the 90% the and then what is this unknown benefit package going to be. So I would agree with you, sir. It is both God and the devil are in the details here. The details are not in the public domain yet. I can assure you um, the people writing them are arguing about it, and they're hearing from all sides. And all I can say is the election of November, the very clear messages from the governors, if they foreclose options that they could have left open that the Senate wanted to, it would be, in a technical term, stupid. So I kind of think it'll be left as an option, but will remain to be seen. At a minimum, states should be allowed to choose, and I think they will be. How about the gentleman on the aisle? I just retired from the federal government after 41 years. <laughs> I have not seen very many federal programs. In fact, I have trouble finding one federal program that delivered what it promised. And even Department of Energy, where I retired from, was going to have energy independence, remember? Mm. Under President Nixon and almost every president's talked about that, but we never got there. The post office, we have had some deregulation from President Carter's era, largely. Trucks and buses and... and airplanes. Uh, uh, airplanes. Airplanes, whatever. And that actually got better. We also had phone deregulation. Mm. If we didn't have phone deregulation, we'd still be on these... <laughs> Wire lines. We are. Look at the competition and what they've done. Look at yeah. the computer industry. Look what it's done. So my question to anybody is, is there a good example where government has delivered what they promised? <laughs> I actually, Grace Marie, you there too. is an example, I think, in, um, in the, um, the health care field. And that, I think, is the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit. That it was set, it wasn't I, the way I would have structured it. But the way that this was created to provide um, a drug benefit that allowed seniors to choose from among competing drug plans, and the plans genuinely do have an incentive to compete on benefits and benefits on benefit structures and on cost, and they have driven down the cost of this program. So it's coming in about 30 percent under budget, and seniors are very happy with it, 85 percent satisfaction rate. But this program was designed in a very different way from virtually all other government health care programs and most other government programs in that it relied on competition in the marketplace and individual choice. That has worked. So that's the model, and I think the model we could have used to really develop a, 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 an access to health insurance for many millions of more people. Uh, the gentleman in the in the blue shirt and tie, he's had his hand up for a while. For Mr. Cannon, about the uh, uh, Ryan Rivlin plan and, and your thoughts on, on that. 
Well, that actually um, um, brings up what I, you know, what my answer would have been uh, uh, to, to the previous question, which is uh, the Medicare Advantage program, I think, has been successful in achieving some of the competition that I talked about before about uh, competition between different ways of organizing and financing medical care. So you got 20% of seniors um, who are 20% of Medicare enrollees who are covered by private plans. In some markets, you have competition between um, fee-for-service providers and health maintenance organizations different ways of organizing and financing medical care. And what happens is you do get these great spillover effects from, from that sort of competition to the extent that the more economical plans, the HMOs, actually uh, bring down the cost of even the traditional Medicare fee-for-service program uh, by encouraging doctors to practice, uh, 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 you know, not to provide so many unnecessary services. And so uh, that comes up when you ask about Ryan Rivlin, because what that program would do is take uh, uh, that, that uh, Medicare Advantage program and basically um, replicate that for all seniors, create a voucher system for all seniors where they would get, um, instead of a government-defined package of benefits, they would get a voucher that works a lot like cash. They, sick people would get bigger vouchers, poor people get larger vouchers so they could all afford a basic level of medical, a uh, basic level of health insurance. And then um, that would dramatically reduce barriers to competition in the health insurance market. You would have much more uh, 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 much lower barriers uh, to innovative health plans like HMOs, like Kaiser Permanente Group Health. So you'd see more of those in more markets, and you'd get more of this sort of competition. Uh, so I think if that, if what you want to do is uh, cure some of the ills that are created by this, um, well, this government-created fee-for-service uh, payment system that we have in the United States, what you need to do is you need to adopt something like Ryan Rivlin that will really allow different ways of financing and delivering medical care to compete so that we get the best from each. How about the gentleman in the back row? Uh, Jonathan Lewis, just on my own. Um, question about, in the, um, there's been a lot of talk about in the 21st century economy whether we need to revisit the model of social security based upon new trends in technology in American life. I was wondering if um, any of the panelists thought it would be useful to, in the sense that more Americans are mobile, um, they're tr um, going to school in one state, working in another, going back to another state, to uh, revisit the state regulation of insurance in the McCarran-Ferguson Act um, in light of that for the next decades to come. Do you want to take that? Sure. I can do it. Uh, McCarran-Ferguson is really an interesting point because you probably know uh, that it was passed right at the end of World War II, after the Supreme Court somewhat surprisingly ruled that insurance was interstate commerce and therefore regulatable by the federal government. And um, Congress rushed to say, oh, but we don't want to do this. So they gave the regulation back to the states. Now, in my opinion, at that moment, no one was qualified to regulate insurance. Today, only the states are qualified to regulate insurance which is why the federal government is having a hard time figuring out what to do. So, so I'm not so sure it's all that smart. What I do think is a good idea, though, is to revisit the whole question of what kinds of regulation should we have in place. What McCarran-Ferguson does is say what other states want to do, basically, as long as it's consistent with federal purpose. Um, what the federal purpose does over time is change. In 44, the fundamental federal purpose was 
prevent price fixing. And states pretty much did that. That's what they did. 73, federal purpose was make sure employers offer HMOs if they're available. That was the Nixon HMO Act. And then ERISA came along and so forth and, and keep going, HIPAA, yada, yada. Today we have a new federal purpose. That is to say, as long as it survives. And that federal purpose is reorganize your insurance markets. By the way, not very differently from the way Medicare Advantage is organized. A minimum benefit package specified, competition among sellers to, to get the business. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting question about whether we should blow up McCarran Ferguson. My personal view, given the expertise and given, frankly, the diversity of our large and great country, I would rather keep it and have the state still play a dominant role because I think only at the moment only the state regulators actually know their local markets. And so I would rather keep it but keep having a national conversation about federal purpose. But there really, there has been, I think, a crescendo of interest in cross-state purchasing of health insurance, portability, and the new chairman of the House uh, Energy and Commerce Committee, which has jurisdiction this, in this area, is firmly committed to producing legislation that would allow more cross-state purchasing of health insurance. So it's a, it's a different way to get there, and it's not without problems, but I think it's certainly something that remains high on the political agenda. Last question, and let's make it this gentleman on the aisle here. Thank you very much. I'm Corey Anderson. I'm with Wells Fargo. And, um, you know, in just thinking about this, the whole health care reform, I'm going to try and relate it to the actual plan itself. You know, Hewitt just put out a survey recently that said family costs are going to go from $10,000. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong to in 2019, roughly $28,000 per family. So, you know, and thinking through the, that sounds like a lot to me, just one, running the numbers through my head, especially when people, you know, especially low income earners that make 30 or $40,000 a year asked to be paying, you know, $28,000 for a family. Um, where are the big ticket items gonna come from? Because it seems like maybe end of life, getting people from intensive care over to hospice quicker might save us some, some dollars. Or also, I've always heard that 5% of the people in, that are causing health care costs drive 90% of the claims dollars. So, um, you know, is there, is there anything to be said for that? Will the individual mandate, you know, try to impact those people that are going into the emergency rooms, you know, with a, with a high dollar claim that could have been avoided because they got preventative care or something like that? So... Well, that's the dream, but let's, 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 let's unpack it because you raise a number of very good points, and I'll try to be brief so everybody can get, get in here. Um, end of life, huge deal. Basically, a third of spending, we think, occurs in the last year of life. Really, really innovative things going on in the private sector about how to talk to families and how to think about these decisions humanely outside, you know, the confines of some uh, other restriction. Very difficult to have an adult conversation about it in the political sphere because it's so easy to demagogue got to be bipartisan. On the issue of emergency rooms, yes, I think it's fair to say a lot of people do end up um, using, I mean, the Medicaid program is pretty clear. We have a lot of excess emergency room use than we would have had if we had had smarter management of chronic conditions. That's also true for the high users. 5% do use 60% of services or something like that. So hands-on, 
sort of low-tech, high-touch managing of those people is really important. That is a huge part of what the transformation of incentives is about, is to incentivize people to, to uh, manage care across silos of care to get the patients engaged. If we don't get the patients engaged, all of this is commentary. Um, I'd just add that I think as long as the question is how are we going to reduce health care spending, we're not going to reduce health care spending mm -hmm. uh, it, it, until individuals have an incentive to reduce health care spending. Um, we're, we're going to be on the same trajectory we're on right now. So with that, I just want to say thank you all for coming. Thanks to our uh, guest speakers, and I want to in, uh, invite you all to join us up in the Winter Garden for our reception. Thanks. Thanks.